KPFK in Los Angeles. This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, we'll talk about voting rights with Dahlia Lithwick. The right-wing supermajority on the Supreme Court has returned to a case about racial gerrymandering in Alabama, where Republicans have defied the court's order. Dahlia will comment on that and also her on her book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. It's out now in paperback. Plus, Adam Hochschild will report on visiting a gun show and explain why the Koch brothers are major funders of the NRA, even though they're not especially enthusiastic about guns. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here. On Tuesday, Joe Biden joined strikers on a picket line. This was the UAW picket line at Willow Run, a GM parts distribution center in Michigan. Have any other presidents done this? Maybe FDR? In a word, no. This is the first time in... uh... American history that a president has joined a labor picket line. Not Obama? Not Obama, not Clinton, not uh, Carter, not Johnson, not Kennedy, not Truman, not Roosevelt. (laughs) What did Biden say in his speech? Well, Biden said that the corporations are doing very, very well, and you, the auto workers, should be doing very, very well, too that Wall Street didn't build prosperity, that the middle class built prosperity and the UAW built the middle class, which is historically pretty correct. Did uh, Biden endorse the UAW's demand for a 32-hour week, or did he say anything about federal spending to promote EV production should be tied to assurances that those cars and trucks would be built by union members? He did not. But as he was uh, walking among the workers after he was no longer talking over the bullhorn, uh, someone in the media asked him if he supported the union's demand for a 40% raise, which actually has been modified to a 36% raise. And Biden basically said, yes, the union should be bargaining for that. I know the UAW has not endorsed Biden. Do you think they'll do that now? I don't know if they'll do that now, but I think they'll do it. Sean Fain, obviously, in his remarks, thanked the uh, thank Biden for, for being there with them. I think at this point, uh, you have to view that as uh, pretty much a done deal. I want to quote from Sean Fain's speech, which was pretty terrific. He talked, it was a speech about the difference between the working class, his words, and corporate executives. Here's what he said in part, quote, whether we're building cars or trucks or running parts distribution centers, whether we're writing movies or performing TV shows, whether we're making coffee at Starbucks, whether it's nursing people back to health, whether it's educating students from preschool to college, we do the heavy lifting. We do the real work, not the CEOs, not the executives. That's what power is. We have the power, close quote. So it's clear here, he's not just talking about the United Auto Workers. No, he's not. He's taking on, he's endeavoring to take on the historic role, really, that the UAW's founders, Walter Ruther, played, uh, who uh, in his inaugural speech as UAW president 
famously said, we are the vanguard in America, we are the architects of America's future. Ruther meant the UAW, but he also meant the unionized workers of America. And Sean Fain has been really encasing what he's about in sort of the Ruther tradition. Uh, And he pointed out, by the way, that the local union that was on that picket line was UAW Local 174, which a 20-something-year-old Walter Ruther, way before he became president, organized in Detroit before the sit-down strikes. That's Ruther's home local. So we're speaking here on Wednesday. Tonight, Donald Trump will be in Michigan and speaking to auto workers, kind of to challenge uh, uh, Biden. Where will he be and who is hosting him? Well, he's going to be at a non-union parts plant to which management, not the workers, had invited him to speak. There may be some UAW members there. There are always dissenting members in any union. There may be uh, auto workers there who are not union workers, including obviously the employees of the plant he's going to. And there will be right-wing, presumably working-class folks Uh, in the general vicinity of that meeting. And Trump's message to auto workers, which he has announced many times over the last several weeks, is that the transition to electric vehicles that Biden is supporting with tens of billions of dollars of federal money is, in Trump's words, ridiculous and a hoax. And recently he complained a couple of days ago in a campaign speech in Pennsylvania also, that it was too hard to find charging stations for EVs. Maybe he hasn't heard that Biden is giving $5 billion to states to build charging stations. And I think this Friday is when they're going to announce who got how much. <laughs> I, I think uh, even Trunks golf carts are probably fossil fuel powered. And uh, <laughs> what, what this guy knows from charging stations is probably what he knows from the uh, Constitution of the United States, which is nothing. <laughs> What, what he says is that the switch to electric vehicles will do two things. Auto workers, it will cost you your jobs, and it will mean that all electric vehicles are made in China. Now, that last point is particularly absurd since all of the benefits that the government is paying to companies who, that build electric cars is conditioned to their building the electric cars in the United States something that Trump never even conceived of doing uh, when he was president. Georgia, for example, we've mentioned this before, is getting the largest uh, electrical vehicle super site, uh, actually one of the largest uh, economic, government-supported economic development projects in, in the history of the United States. It's outside Augusta. This is the Hyundai EV plant. And Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is campaigning on bringing 7,000 new EV jobs to the state. If Trump is going to make opposition to electrical, uh, electric vehicles a campaign issue, he's going to be running up against the Southern governors, most of whom are Republicans and most of whom are touting their success at building EV plants. Isn't that right? Well, absolutely. I mean, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, and Tennessee, those states in particular, have been recruiting uh, for these plants. Many of them are now being located in those states. There's a separate issue 
of whether the UAW, assuming it's successful in its strike, can have a better shot at organizing plants in the South, which it has thus far never had, but some world changes at the NLRB and other factors might just give them a shot this time. And, and, and one of the things that UAW President Sean Fain said was sort of nodding in that direction, just as the Teamsters at UPS were looking ahead to an organizing campaign at Amazon, I think the uh, UAW after this strike is looking ahead to organizing campaign at a lot of those factories. Just to return to Georgia and the uh, Augusta super site for a minute, Georgia, of course, was a swing state that Biden narrowly won, uh, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, dot, 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 indeed. Well, in, in swing states, this might just be the kind of thing that makes the difference in a Biden-Trump rematch. Trump can argue that all of those jobs are going to China, but if you have 7,000 of them in Augusta, that uh, doesn't look uh, immediately to be the case. And of course, there's one other person who will probably be challenging Trump's claim that EVs are, quote, a ridiculous hoax, Elon Musk. He, he could point out that Tesla is not a hoax. Tesla is the world's most profitable automaker. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, Elon Musk is as anti-union as the Southern Republican governors. So, you know, th this has become a cross-cutting issue in a way that really makes Trump's claims normally ridiculous even more so. I, I found an article that said that three years ago, Trump had a different position in uh, one of the 2020 presidential debates with Joe Biden. Trump said, quote, I'm OK with electric cars. I'm all for electric cars. I've given big incentives for electric cars, close quote. You think this is going to matter to his present supporters? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> they're entirely willing to indulge him all kinds of inconsistencies, although I will say his shifting around on the abortion issue may cost him some votes, at least in Republican primaries, not that he's going to lose the Republican nomination anyway. Another fascinating development related to the auto worker, the politics of the auto worker strike, is that a couple of key Republican senators have announced they're supporting some of the UAW demands, although not the UAW itself. Josh Hawley has tweeted, quote, auto workers deserve a raise and they deserve to have their jobs protected from Joe Biden's stupid climate mandates, close quote. Ohio's J.D. Vance has written, quote, I support the UAW's demand for higher wages. He actually credits the union here, but added that the union should also demand that Biden cease all federal support for electric cars. What do you make of this? Well, J.D. Vance and Josh Hawley come from states that have historically had uh, auto plants and uh, lots of uh, unionized auto facilities. So they're, they're kind of walking a tightrope. This is, in a way, you know, kind of recognizing that the Republican Party's base is now in many ways disproportionately found in the white working class, that the white working class obviously supports things like wage increases, and having won the white working class more or less on, on culture war issues and on racial issues and on that sort of thing, they're beginning to sound just a little bit 
like the far-right parties in Europe, uh, Le Pen in uh, France, uh, AfD in uh, Germany, uh, which, you know, basically because their working class historically has been all white native, always support, you know, they, they support um, welfare states and, and, and union contracts and, and that sort of thing. And for instance, Le Pen's party opposed French President Macron's raising the uh, age to uh, retirement eligibility for retirement benefits from 62 to 64. They made common cause with the left-wing parties on that. You know, you can sort of see part of the Republican Party beginning to sort of say to itself, oh my God, our, our base voters are working class, mainly white working class. Uh, we, we won them over on culture war, racial issues, but uh, push comes to shove, we have to support some of their economic concerns, which Trump did in 2016 by saying he wouldn't cut Social Security and Medicare, since also a disproportionate number of Republicans are elderly. Well, now it's time for news of the class struggle in California, a regular feature of this broadcast. Looks like the Hollywood writer's strike is ending after 146 days, that's nearly five months. Members of the Writers Guild of America are voting this week on a new three-year contract for film and TV. It's pretty complicated, of course, but let me summarize what's in the contract. Of course, there's a pay raise. On basic wages, the writers asked for 6% the first year, 5% the second, and 5% the third. They got 5%, 4 and then 3.5%. I have to say, that's not a lot, especially compared to what other unions have won recently. That's true. Uh, but for the Teamsters, the wage percentage uh, increases is as everything they're going to get. For the writers, it's relative bookus compared to what they get on streaming and so forth. Yeah. What happened on uh, streaming... The studios and streamers resisted vigorously uh, and finally gave in on some issues. Writers will get a bonus for original TV shows and movies that are big hits for the streamers. This is Netflix and, you know, Amazon and Apple and so on. Uh, this bonus is limited to high budget made for streaming titles we're told most original series on the big streamers like Netflix, Amazon, Apple, Max, are will meet the high budget threshold, but older series that were originally produced for non-streaming platforms, HBO, but currently the USA network drama Suits has been a binge target on Netflix. Those will not qualify for the bonus. So they won a lot, but they also did not get much for work they've done in the past, which was one of the things they wanted. Indeed. Well, generally a union's focus in bargaining is what we're going to get uh, for future work. They got uh, a significant uh, a victory on future work. They didn't get all that significant a victory on, uh, on past work. They also were very strong on staffing. They wanted a minimum of six writers for a series in the writer's room. The studios and streamers really didn't want to do this one, but they got quite a bit. They got a sliding scale, six writers for shows with 13 or more episodes per season. Of course, most shows these days don't have 13 per season, but five if you have seven to 12 and so on down. And all series must have at least 
three writers. Uh, there's one exception, which is, seems to me a reasonable one, shows where a single writer does all the writing. This doesn't apply. David Lynch wrote all of Twin Peaks, you know, all of White Lotus is written by one guy. So that seems to be significant of victory on artificial intelligence. The other thing which we've talked about here almost every week, the WGA got some guarantees, got a provision that the guild can challenge the use of writers existing work to train AI software programs. Let's hope they challenge all of it, <laughs> but yeah, they right. have the right to challenge. Under the new contract, AI cannot write or rewrite literary material, and AI-generated material cannot be used to undermine a writer's credit. The companies must disclose to the writer whether any materials given to the writer have been generated by AI or incorporate AI-generated material. Disclosure, of course, is different from prohibiting the use right. of AI-generated right. material. So this is another issue where they won some and lost some. The president of the WGA West summed it up by, in two words, quote, we won. I wonder if that you think that's the right way to look at this. Well, given the structural weakness, really, of the writers in the Hollywood pecking order in terms of being able to uh, claim uh, just compensation. Given that, yes, they won. Uh, you would expect the directors to do better, the writers, to, uh, the actors to do better, because they impact the studios at the point of production as writers do not. That has always been the Achilles heel of writer bargaining. Also, I want I want to add one thing on the right to challenge that you cited for uh, some AI issues. That would therefore go to some mediator or independent arbitrator, what have you. It's very important that that mediator be human and not AI. <laughs> I, think, I think that that needs to be that needs to be stressed. Excellent point. Finally, one other item from the headlines. A New York judge ruled on Tuesday that Donald Trump persistently committed fraud by inflating the value of his assets by as much as $2.2 billion. The penalty, about $250 million. The surprise here was that the judge ruled that no trial was needed to determine that Trump had fraudulently secured favorable terms on loans and insurance deals. This was a fact that the judge established. Trump replied that the judge was, quote, deranged. Is that an argument that will hold up in court? Not likely. Not even the Supreme Court, I think, <laughs> would buy that. It needs a little more heft. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Thank you, Harold. Always great to have you on the show. Always great to be here. Next up, Alabama Republicans defied the Supreme Court, which had ordered them to create a second black congressional district. Dahlia Lithwick will comment on that and on other Republican strategies for denying voting rights to their opponents. And later in the program, Adam Hochschild went to a gun show in South San Francisco. He'll report on what he found there. It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics 
thinking about the left. The Supreme Court has begun its third term with a right-wing supermajority, six to three. We're especially interested in voting rights, which they returned to this week thanks to the defiance of the Republican state legislature in Alabama. For comment on that and other legal issues, we turn to Dahlia Lithwick. She's senior legal correspondent at Slate and host of Amicus, Slate's award-winning podcast about the law. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. Her book, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America, is out now in paperback. It won the LA Times Book Prize and was named one of the best books of 2022 by The New Yorker. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome back. So good to be with you again. Thank you for having me. Please explain the original Alabama redistricting decision from last June. It was about racial gerrymandering. It was a historic one that surprised a lot of us. Right. Um, you know, Alabama has seven seats in the House of Representatives. And after the 2020 census, the GOP-controlled legislature set about redrawing their map, dividing those seven districts up. So in a state that voted 62% to 37% for Donald Trump, they somehow created only one seat that was a quote-unquote majority-minority district, uh, and the rest of the Black voters in the state, right, who represent a huge proportion of the voters in the state, were the, the term of art is packed and cracked. They were either spread out around uh, the state so that their votes could be devalued or smashed into this one district, and this was subject to two different arguing that that map violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act and violated the Constitution. It's important maybe as background to say that the Voting Rights Act has been systematically eviscerated by the U.S. Supreme Court in a whole series of cases. Sort of Section 2 is the only filament left to hang on to. This was going to be an opportunity for the court to do away uh, with what was left of the Voting Rights Act. And as you say, in a huge surprise in the last weeks of the term last year, in a case called Allen versus Milligan, the court actually decided to uphold the district court ruling. Uh, and the district court ruling had said, no, these new maps are totally unconstitutional and they violate the VRA. And Chief Justice Roberts, uh, writing with the three Democrats and, surprise, surprise, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, held that under longstanding Supreme Court precedent, uh, Alabama had violated Section 2 of the VRA. And Justice Kavanaugh had a short concurrence where he said, mm, if Alabama had come back with a different argument, I might have thought differently. But here we go. So that's where we were, effective and June of 2023. Why were they back at the Supreme Court this term? Well, so this is the crack up. The Alabama legislature again redrew the same map <laughs> under the directive of both the district court in Alabama and now the Supreme Court. And they essentially refused to draw a second uh, majority minority district, even though they'd been told to do that. They essentially presented a version of the same map and then defended what I think we can only call some form of nullification or just refusal to follow the Supreme Court's um, analysis by saying, yeah, we, we think it's going to go different for us this time. Did Alabama Republicans really think the Supreme Court would reverse its decision of just a couple of months ago? 
Well, on uh, Tuesday, the Supreme Court told them no. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't come back to us and demand, uh, like, go ahead and draw the maps the way we told you to. But I think it's a really interesting and emblematic case about where we are right now, where Alabama just refused to take no for an answer. And whether they hinged that on what has been reported as insider information that Justice Kavanaugh would flip if they brought a different argument, or if they just genuinely believed that if they just keep coming back to the Supreme Court and refusing to take the loss, uh, the court would accommodate them. And so I think what animates it is one of two kind of terrifying possibilities. One, insider information that they have Justice Kavanaugh in the bag that's scary. Scarier still, and voting rights advocate Mark Elias made this point on my podcast a few weeks ago, is that they just don't care. That being lawless for the sake of lawlessness is its own virtue, particularly if you're running for re-election in Alabama. There's nothing quite as cool these days as saying the law doesn't apply to me. And so if, in fact, the end game here is simply flouting the Supreme Court because that is its own form of currency right now, that's it's chilling to the bone. And it's not just Alabama. In Georgia and Louisiana, Republican state legislatures have gerrymandered House districts to reduce Black representation in Congress. Louisiana is a state where Black residents make up 31% of the state population, but five of the state's six representatives in the House are white. A federal district judge ruled last year that the state legislature's map very likely violated the Voting Rights Act and ordered and ordered a new map drawn up for the 2024 elections. The Supreme Court has stood behind that since its Alabama decision last June. So now the Louisiana Republican legislature has been ordered by the Supreme Court to create a second black congressional district. Do you think that's the end of the story? Will black people in Louisiana elect a second representative to Congress next year? I mean, again, I think we are in this just deeply, deeply strange moment. And if you want to pan back even just from these racial gerrymanders and pan back to what's happening all around the country where, you know, we have North Carolina uh, saying that we're taking away the governor's power to, you know, determine who uh, is on election boards. We're seeing, I know we're going to talk about this, you know, Wisconsin <laughs> saying we're simply going to unseat a Supreme Court justice. We're seeing, you know, the state of Louisiana turn off the mics in the legislature when people are talking about issues that are not popular. And around the country, we're seeing efforts to cab in the power of duly elected state prosecutors to prosecute crime. So I think what you're describing, and it's hard to see it because we see it as these sort of episodic, peripatetic, you know, it's like a whack-a-mole thing, like, oh, well, maybe they fixed it in Alabama. Maybe it's not fixed in Ohio. Let's see what's happening in Wisconsin. But I think that the zeitgeist really is this kind of make-me energy, you know, where you are seeing Republican legislatures. And let's be really clear, what animates this is we're losing at the polls. Look at the 2022 midterms. We're losing on every single ballot initiative that puts reproductive uh, rights on the ballot. We lose, right? We can't win through direct democracy. So what are we going to do? We're going to break 
democracy. And every single iteration that you're describing, whether it's refusing to comply with district court orders about redrawing maps, whether it's simply refusing uh, to abide by the principle that a duly elected Supreme Court justice gets to sit on that court absent wild misconduct, or whether it's, you know, Justice Clarence Thomas saying, I don't care if I've violated ethics rules and disclosure rules and also uh, uh, refuse to recuse, make me. And I think that big make me energy is really going to be the hallmark. If it hasn't already been the hallmark of the last year, it is going to be the hallmark of how Republicans in power plan to claw back power. Well, let's talk about the whack-a-mole problem in Wisconsin. This is a state where a Republican supermajority in the gerrymandered legislature has come up with this new idea, impeaching a newly elected liberal Supreme Court justice before she's heard a single case. This is Janet Protasewicz. She won her election in April by an 11-point landslide. This is a state which has been basically 50-50 in the last couple of presidential elections, so that's an incredible victory energized mostly by her support for the principles of abortion rights. During the campaign, Protasewicz, as the journalists say, spoke with unusual candor about her views on policy issues, including redistricting. She said the state's legislative maps were, quote, rigged. And of course, she's right about that. In Wisconsin, the state's voters are nearly evenly divided between Republicans and Democrats, but Republicans control nearly two-thirds of the seats in the legislature. It's impossible for the Democrats right now ever to win control of the state legislature. And now the Republican Assembly Speaker says the state assembly could impeach Protasewicz unless she refuses to recuse herself from cases pending at the court that challenge this set of gerrymandered legislative maps. Uh, And in Wisconsin, like in the United States, you can impeach somebody with a simple majority in the assembly, but it takes two thirds of the state Senate. State Senate is not going to do this. But in Wisconsin, if a judge or justice is impeached, they are suspended until they're acquitted in the Senate. So 51 Republicans could block a state Supreme Court justice from ruling on any cases, conceivably indefinitely. What can you tell us about Wisconsin? Uh, this is another one of those cases. Protosewitz is hardly the first <laughs> uh, judge to openly campaign on issues. Uh, judges who run for judicial elections overtly uh, have, for years have stated their views on abortion, stated their views on being hard on crime, right? The, the days in which Uh, a jurist running for office uh, said nothing about anything uh, are long over. She won by a landslide. She openly ran on being pro-life. I'm sorry, on being uh, uh, pro-reproductive freedom. The balance of the court has shifted. It's not in dispute that the way Wisconsin Republicans plan to hold on to their power uh, is through these wildly gerrymandered districts and maps and through a wildly, uh, for a long time, uh, conservative Supreme Court. They have lost the power of the state Supreme Court. And the only thing to do is take her out. And so you're quite right. There's this incredibly nefarious campaign based on comments she made uh, in advance of 
the election, which she, by the way, cabined and said, I'm not going to talk about um, uh, uh, the issue itself. And there's a secret creepy panel of former justices who are not on the court that's been convened by a Republican lawmaker to, in secret, give direction. I mean, the whole thing, you know, it is so rank. And I think, again, it goes to this larger point we're both making, which is there was a time when vote suppression was the way you did this, right? There was a time when gerrymandering was the way you did this. There was even a time when a little uh, unlawful coup on January 6th was the way that you did this. But now we are at a point where we are seeing around the country in red states, legislatures like pulling out, you know, wrenches and hammers and power tools and drills and saying like, no, we will break the very machinery of democracy on whatever flimsy theory we can advance so that we can keep power. And I think because it's happening sort of everything everywhere all at once, it's hard to clock it. And the best way to clock it is it's all kind of of a piece. I mean, this is all variations on this theme, which is it used to be we would let elections sort of kind of play out. We just make sure you had to have voter ID or we purged all the felons or we didn't let young people you know, vote uh, at their colleges. Like that's how it used to be done. And I think we're still used to thinking in those terms. This is not that. This is subverting entire elections after they've happened, this is saying in the face of district court orders and a Supreme Court reaffirmation in Alabama, draw new maps, that we feel that we have the option to just say, nah. It does seem to me that uh, what's happening in Wisconsin will give new energy to Democrats in the 2024 election. Given the fact that Protosawitz won by 11 points in a 50-50 state, uh, I think Biden is going to be the main beneficiary of this move, whether or not they go ahead with it. One of the things that I think has not been sufficiently discussed in the press is that in the 2022 midterms, when asked why they went out to the polls, an awful lot of people, huge margins of people went out because of the Dobbs decision. But there were an awful lot of people who listed challenges to the rule of law and democracy itself as an issue that was really motivating their vote. I think that even though these things, you know, my God, we're talking about redistricting and apportionment and one person, one vote, like they're such abstractions, right? And what is, you know, a high crime and misdemeanor and what is an impeachable event? All of these things are vaporous highly technical legal ideas that are very hard for people to get out and vote about. And yet, I think in 2022, they did. They really understood in the wake of election denialism, in the wake of rampant violence in the Capitol that was somehow reconstrued as like people lost on the way to the gift shop. People <laughs> understand threats to democracy. You see it in Hungary, you see it in Poland, you see it in Iran, right? None of this is invisible. And so what I think voters are doing, whether their issue is climate change, whether their issue is workers' rights, whether their issue is LGBTQ rights and the horrific trans bans around the country, whether the issue is book banning or, as you say, the right to vote, I think that that connective tissue 
between outcomes that people hate that are wildly unpopular by huge margins and minority rule have become very plain to voters. And I think voters who didn't fully appreciate why is it that racial gerrymandering or political gerrymandering or voter ID or having to stand in line for two hours at the poll in you know Philadelphia or in uh, Atlanta, where you can sort of blow through in Connecticut and drop off your ballot. All of that is starting, I think, to come together as an elaborate understanding of how minority rule preserves itself. And I think you're quite right. I think voters hate that. My sense is that voters hate it, whether it comes in the form of impeaching a popularly elected justice or whether it comes in the form of nullifying a Supreme Court order to draw new maps or whether it comes in the form of a state like North Carolina saying we're taking away the governor's power to make sure that elections are fair. Every version of that seems complicated on its face, but the story it's telling is very uncomplicated, which is this is how majorities are stifled by very powerful, but actually very tiny minorities. And are you going to vote on that in 2024? Now I'd like to talk uh, about your wonderful book, uh, Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America in the Trump Years. It's out now in paperback. Let's start at the very beginning of the, of the Trump Years. Sally Yates was still the acting attorney general of the United States a week after Trump's inauguration. She was the first person in the government to say no to Trump, and she got fired for it. What exactly did Sally Yates say no to? I mean, it's so interesting, right? We're here, we're listening suddenly in the moment of, you know, Cassidy Hutchinson and Mark Milley, you know, all the people who kind of sort of said no, but in a complicated way. And there's a book and there's, you know, a coup. Long before any of that, it seems to me, uh, Sally Yates, who, you know, you're quite right, within a, a week of the inauguration after the 2016 election, uh, the Trump administration was passing this clearly unlawful travel ban, which was going to ban entry to the United States from people who happened to all come from majority Muslim countries. And then acting attorney General Yates took one look at it. First of all, was never consulted. It didn't go, wasn't vetted by her Justice Department, took one look at it and said, nope, I can't enforce this. I cannot put the imprimatur of my DOJ on, you know, this ban. I'm not sending my lawyers in to defend it. And as you said, uh, in saying no, she wouldn't defend it. She was just summarily fired. And the question that I asked in the book and that I ask a year later is, why were there so few Sally Yates? Why were there so many people who knew something shocking and abhorrent was happening and you can call them Bill Barr, or you can call them Don McGahn, or you can call them any number of people who wrote a memo to the file and said, I just want to be super clear for you know my grandchildren's sake that I was not a party to this one piece of rampant lawlessness. Or they wrote a book and waited and put it in their book. The idea that there aren't hundreds, if not thousands of Sally Yates, I think is one of the saddest commentaries on where we are in terms of people willing to just stand up to lawlessness and authoritarianism. We should have had so many Sally Yateses. And the reason she's kind of the, the anchor of the first chapter of the book is that we're so grateful that we just had one. Yeah. 
I'd like to talk a little more about Trump's Muslim travel ban. Remember when lawyers swarmed the airports to, to provide emergency legal service to travelers arriving from Muslim country, countries? You say we can thank Becca Heller for that. I never heard of Becca Heller. Tell us about her. So, so this was one of my favorite moments, and I think another moment that I wish we'd seen repeated thousands of times since. But I describe that moment where the Muslim ban goes into effect, and suddenly at every major international airport in the country, random lawyers, whether they do like probate or whether they're divorce attorneys or whether they're real estate lawyers, just jump in their cars, go out to the airports, show up at arrivals and hold up these signs, right, in Pushtu and Arabic that say, I am your lawyer. And people who got onto their planes, often having sold all their worldly possessions with the belief that they either had asylum or that they had work papers or that they were going to be allowed to enter, were suddenly stateless in the sky. And that these lawyers just showed up with the understanding that if these folks have a lawyer who's willing to file a habeas claim for them, they might just be able to get into the country. It was, in my view, as somebody who, you know, having graduated from law school where every single comment about lawyers ends with at the bottom of the ocean, it was the high water mark for what attorneys can do to not just kind of change policy, but to serve and serve democracy. And Becca Heller was this young uh, lawyer who had, uh, together with a couple of other people, crafted IRAP, which was a, a refugee project. And the notion of this travel ban is coming. We are not prepared. I'm going to put out some spreadsheets there and see if we can get some lawyers out to the airports to defend these people in a pinch was very much um, engineered by Becca and some of her team and really supported by the ACLU and other groups that then litigated the travel ban. And I, I, I use it as an example, not just of where did that energy go, the energy that every single one of us had skin in the game, and we would go out to airports and and chant, let the lawyers in the way they did at SeaTac, but also that any one person can make a huge difference, which is very, very, very much the message I was trying to communicate throughout the book. And let's compare and contrast Sally Yates and Becca Heller. Would you say they had different approaches to the law? <laughs> I mean, I, I deliberately put their chapters side by side in no small measure because Sally Yates, I often say, you know, comes across as this kind of Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart character, you know, such a deep and abiding belief in the power of law, in the dignity of law, such a deep sense that these things we learned in law school are clarion calls to be lawful and be better and do better. And then Becca Heller, who could not be more different. I mean, Becca really essentially says straight up in her interview with me in the book, you know, master's tools to take about take apart the master's house. You know, the famous Audre Lorde quote about 
I don't know another way. And so I'm just using the tools of the law to try to affect change, but I have no illusions that the law makes us whole or better or brings dignity or equality. It's just the law basically is an instrument of oppression all the time. So I'm going to try to use it to make it fair. And so I love kind of the contrast between the two of them. And I guess I would say one other thing, which is, you know, I finished the book Uh, right before the Dobbs decision came down last year. And I had to rewrite big swaths of it um, after Dobbs came down. And one of the things that I really noticed in every chapter of the book, whether I was talking to Anita Hill or, you know, Roberta Kaplan, who sued the Nazis, uh, who, who marched in Charlottesville in 2017 and won, every single one of them lives on this seam that we're describing, you know, that 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 somewhere between the extreme aspirational, you know, the law makes us free, the law lifts us all up, the arc of the moral universe bends toward justice, and the other side of it, which is the law is a machine that for centuries has been used to keep minorities and women and vulnerable people down, and that I think that that tension every single person i interviewed including you know vanita gupta who's at the justice department now said some version of yeah the law is both the cause of and the solution to all our problems and i love the ways in which even within any one chapter each of these women i interviewed sometimes toggles between those two extremes very comfortably with the understanding that the roe v wade that gave women a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy could flip into dobbs which is the reason there are women who are now in jail for sending text messages or for miscarrying in a way that the government deemed uh, uh, suspicious. I mean, that notion that the law can be used to make women free or to put women in jail is one of the themes that I found absolutely consistent across every chapter in the book. Dahlia Lithwick, you can listen to her award-winning podcast, Amicus and read her wonderful book, Lady Justice. It's out now in paperback. Heather Cox Richardson, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago, wrote that Lady Justice is, quote, smart, incisive, and engaging, and a must-read, not only for its recounting of the events of those dangerous four years, but for its evocation of the resolve, courage, and principles of those women holding the line against the rise of authoritarianism not least of whom is Dahlia Lithwick herself. Yes, Dahlia, (laughs) thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me back. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Next up, how can we explain the love affair with guns in Trump's America? Adam Hochschild has been thinking about that. He wrote about it for the New York Review, where he's a regular contributor. His books include To End All Wars, which is about World War I, and most recently, Spain in Our Hearts, Americans in the Spanish Civil War, 1936-39. to We talked about both of them here. He also teaches at the Graduate School of Journalism in Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. 
Hi, John. Good to be back here with you. Well, you went to a gun show uh, recently. What was it like? Well, it was at the Cow Palace, which is just south of San Francisco, uh, an enormous uh, exhibition hall there, longer than a football field, 48,000 square feet, and every inch of this huge room was packed with tables displaying every conceivable you know, type of, of rifle, handgun, an ancient musket that fired uh, with black powder, a uh, Japanese gun that fired a bullet that was an inch and a half in diameter, plus all kinds of survival in the wilderness gear, a beef jerky, bear jerky, uh, emergency flashlights, uh, uh, knives of all sorts. And um, I was also struck by the fact that scattered among all this stuff, which is appear appealing to gun lovers and hunters, uh, there were all kinds of bumper strips and cloth patches that you could uh, sew on your jacket, saying things like uh, Jihad Free Zone, <laughs> Uh, 9-11 was an inside job. The wall, if you build it, they can't come. Uh, mm. a hunting permit, unlimited for ISIS, uh, and on and on like that. Do you, think, um, uh, do you think anybody at the Cow Palace there voted for Hillary? I doubt it. I doubt it. I would say that, uh, you know, 90% of the people there were men. 98% of them were white. And I didn't see anybody who looked like a Hillary voter. Maybe a few people working these tables selling stuff who'd been sent out by the store they worked at, but uh, otherwise I think not. I was interested to learn from your article in the New York Review that the Koch brothers have been major funders of the NRA. You know, I don't think the Koch brothers really believe that having guns in their homes will enable to them to shoot intruders trying to rape their wives and kill their children. Why do you think the Koch brothers are major funders of the NRA? Uh, yeah, I think they their homes have other protections uh, around them, I'm sure. Uh, I think f for two reasons. One is that the NRA is so effective at turning out right-wing voters. You know, they've got five million members, and their real strength is that these are people who vote according to what the NRA tells them. Every member of Congress, every member of the Senate, every state legislator is rated on his or her attitude towards guns, and people who join the NRA, who are not all gun owners in the country, but those who care most passionately about that, and they tend to be people who, you know, where owning a gun is an important part of defining who they are. Uh, they will vote. Uh, they turn out to vote in huge numbers, a very high proportion of them vote, and they vote according to what the NRA tells them. And, you know, a legislator's position on guns, uh, if they're very, uh, you know, pro-gun, the chances are that on all the things that really matter to the Cokes and their ilk, which is lowering taxes on business and uh, eliminating regulations of every sort, they're the same legislator is going to be in favor of those things. I think for the Cokes also there's another benefit, which is that the more noise the NRA makes, the more it spreads the idea that the real source of political power in this country comes from owning a gun and yeah. not from 
owning, say, a you know fifty billion dollar industrial and commercial empire. Yes, excellent point. You know, uh, Obama was a great thing for the NRA and for the gun manufacturers because they could say Obama is coming to take away your guns, then you won't be able to shoot the people who are coming to you know, rape your wife and kill your children. And so you need to vote Republican. You need to buy more guns before Obama takes them away. Today, of course, nobody thinks Trump is going to come and take away their guns. But this fantasy of the 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 uh, ATF agents or I don't know who coming to take away your guns has become a very powerful one in that far right sector of America. Did you see signs of that fantasy at the gun show in Daly City? Oh, I saw one bumper sticker on sale that said uh, "Gun Free Zones Kill People," uh, things like the things like that. But I think, you know, we have to sort of step back and analyze that fear. They're going to take my guns away from a a psychological perspective because the people who are most passionate about this, they tend to be, as you say, people from red states, from rural areas, uh, from poorer parts of the country, from Appalachia, from the Deep South, and so on. And these are folks who have seen a lot else in their lives taken away. Jobs, mm-hmm. for one thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are areas of the country where unemployment tends to be higher, where you know industries like coal mining have shut down, where manufacturing of all sorts has uh, fled the United States for low-wage countries overseas or is gone forever because of automation. And so... You know, these are people who've seen a lot taken away, and I, and I can feel for them. You know, they've suffered. And I think the NRA very shrewdly focuses their fear on the idea they're going to take away your guns. And this is something that uh, politicians can promise, you know, we'll never take them away. Whereas, of course, you can't really promise that you're never going to take, you know, that somebody's job isn't going to be yeah. going to disappear because everybody knows it's a very unstable economic climate, particularly for lower wage workers in manufacturing type industries. You know, we haven't said very much about Trump up to this point. Where does Trump enter this story? What's Trump's place in the the uh, fantasy world of of those far right wing uh, NRA members? Well, he's the first sitting president in three decades that has addressed an NRA convention. And he told them, you know, you have a friend in the White House and your Second Amendment rights will forever be protected and so on. Uh, I think, to me, the scary thing uh, about Trump's relationship to guns is this. One branch of this phenomenon is the rise of the militia movement. Yes, And we've seen these folks, you know, we saw them marching through Charlottesville, Virginia last August in their camouflage jackets and so on at that rally trying to prevent the Robert E. Lee statue from being taken down where there was, you know, somebody killed by one of these right-wingers who rammed his car into a crowd. Uh, We've seen them at these uh, land occupations in the western states, in Nevada and Oregon, um, where... You know, armed militia gather because they, you know, they're in defense of uh, some rancher who wants to graze his his cattle on national forest land, 
uh, and so forth. So they're the, and there also are militia who have, as volunteers, gone and patrolled near the Mexican border. What's ominous to me is that under Trump, that number of armed militia groups in the United States has soared very ominously. Uh, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which counts these kinds of things very carefully, counted 165 armed militia groups in the United States in 2016. That number rose to 273 wow. militia groups in the U.S. 2017. Adam Hochschild, he wrote about guns in Trump's America for the New York Review. It's a terrific piece. Adam, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. We spoke with Adam Hochschild about guns in April 2018. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Music